Hello, friends. Wherever you are joining in today, just so glad you could be part of this online liturgy as we move this weekend into the season of Advent. And Advent is intended to be a time of preparation moving towards our celebration of the birth of Jesus. But it's also intended to be a time of expectancy in reminding ourselves that we are waiting also for the second advent of Jesus, that he is coming again to establish his eternal kingdom. So in our time together today, the high point of this liturgy today is actually the meal of communion that we're going to receive together. Now, if you haven't prepared for that yet, I just invite you to pause this liturgy. If you could go get a piece of bread, some juice or wine, to use those as elements uh, when we do receive communion in a few moments, and we'll wait for you. You know, a number of years ago, before my father passed away, he gave me and my three siblings just a wonderful gift of taking us with him on a trip to Northern Ireland, where we have much history, relatives, and great ancestry. It was the last trip that dad took there in his life. And as we were there, just connecting with our past, our heritage, our relatives, it really just enriched our understanding of ourselves. You know what I mean? I mean, I I come from a pretty conservative, committed church attending, quite religious background. And it, it was a very loving home, but we didn't smoke or dance or chew or drink stuff we weren't supposed to. I mean, that was our, our family. No playing cards, no nothing. So when we were in Ireland with Dad, for one, we went to the Ballantoy Church, which our family had worshipped at uh, for many generations. And it's an often photographed old church right on the Irish Sea there. And there's an old brass plate on the gates into the church. And that plate says, in memory of Aeneas Glass by his sister, Charlotte Glass. And then you go into the graveyard around the church and there are ancestors' gravestorms peppered around the graveyard. And it was just so cool. And, and really, that's the kind of heritage you, you want to share with others, even as I'm doing with you right now. And it felt pretty good as people would come into the churchyard, relative ours, thank you. But then at the other end of the spectrum, we were talking over lunch the next day with our dad and asking about his father, our grandfather, who grew up in Ireland, moved to Chicago and came to faith in Christ when my dad was just in his youth. And dad just reminisced about his father. And and he said, uh, when I was young, my dad used to hold dances for the neighborhood in our house in Chicago. Now, that was quite surprising news to all four of us kids. I mean, wait a second. Grandpa held what? Where? I mean, we dance now, but not then. And, And then dad added, Yeah, the families of the neighborhood would come over on Saturday evenings to our place, and we would have these Irish dances, and Grandpa would serve them whiskey that he used to make in the basement. I mean, nothing crazy, just fun neighborhood gatherings. Now, for me and my siblings, we literally stopped eating kind of mid-bite. I mean, for us, this was kind of like hearing that the Pope was actually Jewish or something. I mean, what? And and then my brother said, wait a second, that would have been right during prohibition, during that alcohol prohibition in the States, when about the only alcohol in the States was snuck in illegally from Canada. 
There you go. And so we all said to Dad, Dad, why have we never heard this before? Honestly, we were saying around the table there, who are we? I mean, this is part of our story? Just seems so odd. And it really couldn't help but kind of reorient a bit in our self-understanding. Now, Dad probably never told us that before because he didn't want to highlight those parts of our heritage for some reason. And actually, a similar principle held true during the days of Jesus. I mean, for example, when you introduced a new teacher, a new rabbi to a town, you introduced them first with their most admirable elements of their achievements or heritage. And that is just how the Gospel of Matthew begins. At the start of his Gospel, Matthew opens, not with a description of this rabbi Jesus' birth, but he begins first with his genealogy. And what Matthew is doing is he's saying, you can't understand the birth of Christ. You can't just jump right into the Christmas story unless you first look at the family tree of Christ. In particular, at his foremothers and forefathers and their stories and their lives. Because their lives repeatedly point to and help us understand who Jesus is and what he's about. So, During the season of Advent, in a new teaching series that we're calling Preparing for Jesus, we're going to focus in on four quite surprising, even shocking individuals who are named in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew in order for us to better understand who Jesus is and what his kingdom is actually about. So would you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 1, And as we begin there, remember, friends, this is the word of God. And Matthew writes this in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus. Okay, stop there for a second. Now, we miss something here in our English translations because that word genealogy, it's actually a Greek word that you know originally. It's a Greek word, genesis. So really the first phrase in Matthew means the book of of Genesis, the book of beginnings of Jesus, of the Messiah. Okay, now, can you think of any Old Testament links that Matthew might have been making here? I mean, kind of interesting that that phrase, the book of Genesis, a book of beginnings, is only used two other times in all of Scripture. In Genesis 2-4, it says the book of beginnings of heaven and earth. And then in Genesis 5-1, it says... The book of beginnings of humanity, of Adam. So it's kind of like Matthew is saying, okay, you've heard of the Hebrew book of Genesis? Now let me tell you of the one who is the new Genesis. Because Jesus is not just a great rabbi. He's not just a great spiritual teacher. Matthew is saying, Jesus begins a whole new epic in human history. So let's hear what Matthew writes. Back to Matthew 1 and verse 1, he says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew begins by using three titles for Jesus right at the start. For one, he calls him Christ. Now Christ or Christus was a Greek translation for the title Messiah. That was the great deliverer, the savior of Israel 
whom the whole testament had foretold. But then he calls him not a son, but he calls him the son of David. And that's referring to David, the king of Israel. And Matthew is saying, or meaning, Jesus, who died on the cross and rose from the grave, he is our king. And then Matthew calls him son of Abraham, third title, meaning that all of the promises given by God to Abraham are now fulfilled in Jesus. Now think of those promises. Think especially of the promise given by God to Abraham. This is in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2. It says this, the Lord said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just Jews, but all families, all nations will be blessed now through Jesus. So for those, even today, who might say, you know what, the Old Testament is really unnecessary now. Matthew would say to us, no, it carries the promises that Christ fulfills. So let's look at Jesus' genealogy, his heritage. This is what Matthew writes in verse 2 of Matthew 1. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, those great patriarchs of Israel. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, there was an understood and accepted format when you presented genealogies in Jesus' day. I mean, you typically didn't list everyone in your genealogy. So Matthew here, he's not listing every generation that led up to Jesus. And because that phrase that is translated as the father of there, that can also mean the ancestor of. So a genealogy in this, in biblical times, you listed really kind of the ancestral high points. You kind of listed the family names on the church gate points. You didn't really mention the questionable stuff, the the questionable ancestors. And you hardly ever listed a woman. I mean, women just weren't mentioned. So as we start with Matthew's lineage of Jesus, it is more than a bit surprising that we come to names like Tamar. I mean, what? You don't highlight Tamar. I mean, for one, she was a woman in that day. And she had a very messy sexual story. And she wasn't even a Jew. I mean, you don't highlight her unless Matthew, led by the Holy Spirit, was trying to teach us something vital about who Jesus is and what he taught. And actually, Tamar is the first of four mothers shockingly listed in these opening verses of Matthew. And likely only one of them was a Jew. And all of them had stories that involved really questionable sexual elements. Okay, so let's go back in Genesis to the story of Tamar and see what Matthew might want us to learn from her part in Jesus' story. Turn back to Genesis chapter 38. In Genesis 38 is where we read this story. And let me just kind of remind you of the context of her story. I mean, you remember Joseph in Genesis, the coat of many colors? Well, by Genesis 38, Joseph's oldest son, or rather his oldest brother Judah, the one who had helped sell 
Joseph into slavery. Judah, at this point, is now married. And he has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And his oldest son, Ur, marries a woman named Tamar. Now, Ur lived his life in just constant defiance of God. And so because of his rebellion, God strikes Ur dead. Now, understand, in that day, when an older brother died, the next brother was to take his brother's widow into his home and to produce an heir for his dead brother with her. And understand, that was viewed as a sacred responsibility. So Judah gives Tamar to his next son, to Onan. Now, Onan has sex with Tamar, but he takes steps to be sure she doesn't get pregnant. And really, as he does that, he's walking in defiance of God. So God strikes Onan dead for his sin. Okay, now Judah has no clue who or what killed his son. But what he does know is that Tamar is a common denominator. So he's not really thrilled with the idea of giving her to his last surviving son, Shelah. So Judah says to her that he will give Tamar to Shelah when Shelah is a bit older. But he never does. In fact, Judah finally tells Tamar to return to her own father's house, which in that day was a huge disgrace for a woman. So Tamar still has no child, no heir, which again was a profound reality in that day. And then Judah's own wife dies. And after her death, he heads off one day to visit his workers in another town. Tamar hears about this and Desperate for an heir, Tamar puts on a disguise, dresses like a prostitute, and she hangs out on the road on the way to that other town in order to encounter and seduce Judah. This is what we read, Genesis 38, 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Then verse 16. He turned to her at the roadside and said, understand, Judah makes a proposition. Come, let me come to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So Judah pays this prostitute with his ring, cord, and staff. Bad move. He sleeps with her. Worse move. Oblivious to who she is. And now Tamar is pregnant. And we ask, what in the world is Tamar doing? I mean, this was her father-in-law. Now, clearly, this is a very different era and time period. I mean, if she could have a child, even through Judah, understand, it would mean for Tamar that, for one, it provided protection for her life, that she would be provided for in her old age. But then also, it was a means of continuing the lineage and name of the family, which, again, was so significant in that day. And we know God wanted... Abraham's lineage to continue. So this is what happens. Look at verse 24 in Genesis 38. It says, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And not realizing that he was the father. So Tamar, try to picture this, is brought out to be burned before a crowd. But as she's brought out, Tamar shouts to the crowd, 
I am pregnant by the man who owns this ring, this cord, and this staff. Busted. <laughs> you know, I imagine you all know about Barbie dolls and G.I. Joes. Well, a true story. In 1993, the Mattel Toy Company, which produces both G.I. Joes and Barbie dolls, had a clandestine group sabotage hundreds of their dolls. And the voice boxes that were originally in the G.I. Joes were put into the Barbies. And the voice boxes that were originally in the Barbies went into the G.I. Joes. So on Christmas Day, when unsuspecting little children pulled the string of their new G.I. Joe, he would chirp, let's go shopping. But then the Barbie dolls would bellow, attack, vengeance is mine. True story. Here's the thing. Judah, he thought he was dealing with a Barbie doll in Tamar, not realizing she's a G.I. Joe. She doesn't sound or act like a Barbie. So Judah realizes and confesses that Tamar is pregnant because of him. So she's spared, and she gives birth to twin sons of Judah, Perez and Zerah. And so Matthew includes her in the genealogy of Jesus? I mean, Genesis 38, it, it gives the impression that Tamar was a tough, ingenious, tenacious woman. She was just battling, though, oppression and destitution. And yet, there she is in Matthew chapter 1. So just catch this. From the opening words of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is presented as the one who will ignore human labels of legitimacy and illegitimacy in order to offer his gospel of redemption to anyone, including the most despised and outcast of society. You know, it was in the fifth century that there was an early church father, an early church leader by the name of Cyril of Alexandria, and he wrote this about Tamar's story. Although the text of the story does not seem very suitable, no kidding, in Judah and Tamar, the mystery of the incarnation of our Savior is described, which is the purpose of all Scripture. In other words, he was saying, if you want to know what Jesus is about, just look at the redemption in Tamar's story. From a hopeless, outcast prostitute to the ancestor of a king, You know, in Luke chapter 4, Luke describes Jesus reading a prophecy in the synagogue from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And this prophecy is about Jesus himself. This is what Jesus said, Luke 4.18. Jesus said, God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty, to set free, those who are oppressed. That's what Jesus came to do. And Matthew wanted to be crystal clear from the opening words of his gospel. Just look at Tamar. You know, Tamar's presence here in Matthew chapter 1, I think really it encourages us 
in at least a couple of ways. I think a first encouragement is this. Jesus wants to set you free in him. You know, some of you, I imagine, even if you are a follower of Christ, you feel like you are in bondage to, under the shame of, condemned by, something from your past. Maybe it's not even your distant past. I mean, you can acknowledge that you receive forgiveness from Jesus, but really in this, you can't release yourself. So let's put it this way. Remember this, friends. If God can bring beauty out of Tamar's mess, he can do the same with yours. If God can bring beauty out of Tamar's mess, without question, he can do the same with yours. Because Jesus says, come to me, I will give you rest. So would you respond to him? But then I think this story gives us a second encouragement. And I think a question for us as followers of Jesus to ask ourselves at any time, any age is, I mean, how well are we visibly representing this commitment to reach out to the oppressed and marginalize the society? How well are we doing at that? Reaching out to them with the love and the good news and salvation and hope in Jesus Christ. How would you say? You know, what's interesting in this genealogy is that Matthew, he doesn't merely refer to Tamar, but rather understand he honors her by including her in the ancestry of the Messiah, which suggests to us, friends, that it's not enough to merely care for the oppressed, but truly, we must find ways of honoring them, meaning of affirming their immense value in God's eyes. Because that's what Jesus did. And Jesus calls us to continue his work of setting the oppressed and impoverished free. So let me ask, is God stirring your heart to act in any way of compassion this Advent? Can I ask you to reflect on the question, what is God saying to you right now? And can I suggest one way for us to really follow Jesus in his ministry this Advent? It's what John mentioned in Community Life. Uh, the city of Calgary Food Bank is truly in a fairly desperate situation. They're so low on supplies, even though we haven't even entered the month of December. So as one small way of responding to God, could we work collectively to just dramatically increase the supplies of the food bank in order to care for those in our city who are in need, who are impoverished, who are even desperate? So we're going to be doing that. I invite you. you can, we'll be receiving items for the food bank here between December 5th and 13th during the daytime hours between 9 and 4 p.m. And invite you to come. You can go to our website. It gives you instruction, details on what is needed, different items you can provide in this. Because, friends, in this Advent season, we want our focus to be not only on giving gifts to each other, but particularly on giving gifts to those in greatest need. Because that's what our Savior and King did when he came. And how fitting then to move from this encouragement, this exhortation, to the meal of communion, where we together, right now, if you have your bread with you, 
we take bread and we break it as followers of Christ have done over the centuries. And we remember as we break it, the body of Christ broken for you. So would you take your bread and eat? And then likewise, we take the cup, remembering, declaring, and receiving the blood of Christ poured out for us. So as you take the cup, hear those words again. The blood of Christ poured out for you. Receive from him. May I lead us in prayer? And Father, we thank you that you still seek to feed us, both with your word and, Father, with this meal. And I pray for my friends, you would nourish them spiritually through the bread, through the cup, Father. We thank you for your grace to us. And Father, we pray as we move into this Advent season, would you, by the power of your Spirit, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, attentiveness to express you wherever we are, to express your grace, particularly to those who are in need, who are desperate, who are outcast. Lead us to that end so that you would be glorified and that they would know you, we pray. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. So glad you could be joining us today, friends. Do hope you join with us next weekend as we look at another very surprising woman. But now as you walk into this weekend, whatever it does hold for you, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of his Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope this week. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.